Well, first of all, I think this goes without saying that it's not easy to give away something that you love, especially if you're under five. I think that sharing is probably an evil word to anyone five and under. It means I have to give away my toy and I don't know when I will see it again. When I was in Vista, I taught kindergarten and I absolutely loved it. But I found out during the school year um, that I was pregnant with my second daughter. And I had to resign um, from my class. And that little girl was three weeks late. I just want to tell you, she still kind of holds to that pattern. But, I, you know, I, I gave up teaching a little bit early because I needed to rest and all of these things needed to go on. And because she wasn't coming and because there were no signs that I'd ever go into labor, I went to go visit my kindergarten class. And as I walked into the classroom, I saw some names written on the board. And I burst into tears, and I went running out of the classroom, which wasn't easy for a pregnant woman. When I had taught that class, I had a reward system. And so what would happen is I would just say, somebody's being very quiet and doing their work so well. They get a teddy bear stamp. And I did a program called Math Their Way. And after 10 teddy bear stamps, you would get a teddy bear in the tens column, right? Because you had your 10 ones, and that would be cleared out, and you'd get it in the tens column. So once you had gotten gotten a teddy bear in the hundreds column, so that's 10 sets of 10. So they're learning decimals, but they don't know it, right? And places, place settings, ones, tens, and hundreds. Once I got a teddy bear in the hundred, I had a prize box. And they got to come to the prize box and get a prize. I never, ever, ever had a problem with discipline in my class. They all were just so good. But let me say this, too. I didn't mind talking, okay? I felt like those kindergartens, my class was such a good class. If they were talking, it must be necessary, one. And two, they were probably trying to help their neighbor. I just assumed that. But there were times that because you got a teddy bear, if you worked quietly, the whole class would be so quiet. And so I just, as a teacher, would go, oh, my goodness, what is going on here? Everybody is so quiet. I have to give teddy bears to everybody. And then the class would be like, ah, you know. But then I walk in, and there's their names on the board. I, and we still get choked up. I saw Michael's name, and I, you know, I just fell apart. I went outside, and this the uh, teacher's aide came out, Shirley, and she's like, Shirley, are you okay? And I'm like, Ooh. She said, what's wrong? The name's on the board. And so anyway, she went and got the teacher, who is sweet as apple pie. I kid you not. She's like, Cheryl, you know, are you all right? And I just looked at her, and I said, Michael doesn't know his own strength. He didn't know he was going to be five foot ten in kindergarten. You know, he wasn't that big, but he was my biggest boy. And he would, he loved to go, hey, and hug the kids, and they would fall over. It was, he was adorable, bursting with enthusiasm. I would say, we're going to do math, and he'd be like, yeah, we're going to read a story, yeah, 
yeah. And then he's like, we're going to read a story. We're going to read a story. And he had to tell everybody. He just was bursting. And, and he did talk a lot. And it was hard for him to sit still. But I kind of understood that. <laughs> then there was Marcus. He told the biggest stories. And, and I was working with him on the glory of truth. I remember one time he came to school and he said, teacher, my dad caught a mountain lion. And the kids were like, no way, Marcus, not even. And he's like, uh-huh. And I'm like, well, wait, his dad works on Camp Pendleton. It might have happened. So Marcus, tell us more. It was in my backyard. I'm like, okay, Marcus. <laughs> Maybe it was a kitty cat, right? You know, and I'm like, and this other time he goes, I got a box of, kin- I got a box of crayons. You know, somebody was talking about their new box of crayons. They brought it for sharing. And Marcus goes, I got a box of crayons too, a big one. And somebody said, how big? He goes, see that wall? See that wall? From wall to wall. You're like, no. But even though he had this propensity and he would get a teddy bear if he told the truth, he was incredibly bright and gifted. And he loved, he loved to help others learn. Then there was Rebecca. She was on the board too. I loved Rebecca. She was just absolutely adorable. She was one of those people that always tried to hold the teacher's hand, which was me. You know, those little kids that are like, they just want to hold your hand and you're like, I am loved. I mean, I just, oh, she was super, super bright. She caught on quickly immediately. She was my first reader. You know, she was just so bright. And she, she did. She wanted to instruct her neighbors, but she was a good aid to the teacher. And then there was Charles. Charles was exuberant, bigger than life, loved a little too blunt at times, and had a hard time sitting still. I explained the strengths to this new teacher. And you know what she did? She promised me she would never write their names on the board again. I didn't want these children to feel shamed or less than. I wanted them to know that they were so precious to Jesus and so loved. It was so hard for me to give that class over because those children were all so dear to my heart. Many times in my life, I've been called by God to give something over, to surrender, to resign, to give up control of classroom, church, friend, situation, child, possession, position, and my own reputation. These are things that I've treasured, felt responsible for, loved, guarded, protected, kept, tended, invested in, and put my best efforts forward into. Some have been taken away by force, others by coercion, circumstances, life. These are situations that no doubt you've been through, scenarios that are familiar to you also. They're taken away because the situation is just beyond our control. Have you had something like that? It's too far away. It's too big. Loved ones beyond your reach. Needs beyond your resources. Help beyond your energy or expertise. So what can you do? You've tried your best. 
I think of this story in 1 Kings 3, verses 16 through 27, with King Solomon. And these two prostitutes come before King Solomon, and they have one living baby and one dead baby. And they both claim that the living child is their own. And Solomon looks at both of these women, and he calls for one of his guards, and he says, chop the baby in half and give half to each mother. Well, one of the women shouts out, no, give her the baby. Spare the child's life. Just give her the baby. And Solomon said, give the baby to the one who just called out, who is willing to give the child away to save the child. That's the real mother. You see, there are times that we have to surrender something in order to preserve it, in order to save it, in order for it to have its best. Maybe you've tried your best to keep something, but the situation just kept getting worse. Maybe it's gotten to the place where it's more dangerous for you to try to hold on to that thing, for that thing or for that person, in that situation. It's causing harm to others. You have to, you must. It is the best just to give it to God relinquish that person, that thing, that situation to God. Give up your control and give your responsibility to God. I think of Zipporah, Moses' mother, who, when she found out that Pharaoh was ordering the death of every male Hebrew child in Egypt, took a basket and covered it with pitch inside and out, making it waterproof. Then put her precious, beautiful, we're told in Hebrews, baby boy, into this basket and put him into the Nile River. She was not, she was not relinquishing her baby to the Nile and the crocodiles there. Nor was she later, when the child was found by Pharaoh's daughter and taken to the court of Pharaoh, nor was she relinquishing her beautiful son to the pagan court of Pharaoh. She was relinquishing her child to God, to God who could protect his mind, his heart, his body, his frame. Elizabeth Elliot wrote in the book Passion and Purity, I have tried to explain it sometimes to people who are lonely and longing for love. Give it to Jesus, I say. The loneliness of itself is material for sacrifice. The very longings themselves can be offered to him who understands perfectly. The transformation into something he can use for the good of others takes place only when the offering is put into his hands. Paul had to relinquish something he treasured. He had to relinquish these churches that he had established. Paul loved these ch churches. He had sacrificed his welfare. He told us on one occasion that he had endured the perils of robbers, of animals. He said that he had, he had many sleepless nights, that he had gone without food, that he was ill-clothed, 
He sacrificed his welfare for these churches. He sacrificed his reputation for these churches. We read in Corinthians and in even Galatians that these false brethren had come in after he left and had begun to misinterpret every single thing Paul did. Whatever Paul did, they would put bad motives to it and say, oh, I know it looked like this, but this is what he was really doing. They questioned and they attacked everything that Paul did. Paul sacrificed his health. Again, sleepless nights, going hungry. He sacrificed his own money. He worked with his own hands. He made tents. He sacrificed his livelihood, his pleasures, his enjoyment, things he would have liked to have done. And he made a huge emotional investment in each church. He felt such a deep responsibility for these churches. While he was with them, he guarded them from the attacks of the hostile Jews. As we begin chapter 20 of Acts, we find that Paul would not leave Ephesus until the uproar was over. He waited till it ceased. He wanted to make sure that everyone in the church of Ephesus was all right and that it was over. He had wanted to go into that wild assembly and give himself as a sacrifice for the Ephesian congregation. He had been concerned about the welfare of the Thessalonians when he was in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28, right up there with the things that Paul endured for the ministry, like beatings and stoning and shipwreck, was, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily is my deep, concern for all the churches. Paul had protected these churches from false teachers and those who would try to put them under the law or club them over the head with the law. He had taught them the word of God. He had established them in the grace of God and he prayed for them for the empowering of God's spirit. In every epistle that Paul wrote, Paul mentioned his prayer for that assembly. Paul had to say goodbye to these churches, and he was not sure where his future would take him. But he knew this, that chains and tribulations awaited him and that he wouldn't see their faces again. And yet Paul left these believers with four essentials. This is how he was able to surrender them to God. He left them with encouragement He left them with his example. He left them with a warning. And he left them with an entrustment to God. We see this encouragement again as we go to Ephesus. That before departing from Macedonia, Paul embraced them. And that word embraced in the Greek has the connotation of encouraging embrace. Then he went over to the region of Ephesus and encouraged the believers with many words. He wanted to make sure he told them everything they needed to know, to give them as much encouragement, 
I love the book of Ephesians, which we're in on Sunday mornings. Just the in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Talk about encouragement. This is who you are. This is what you have in Christ. When I found out that we were moving from Vista to England, that was really hard. Our time in Vista was incredible. We were there for 13 years. When we took the church, there was about 40 people. We took it down to about 15. And then God began to do this amazing work. So by the time we left, there was a congregation of 3,000 people. We had a school that went all the way from kindergarten to um, high school, all through high school. I taught kindergarten just for those few months. And it was just wonderful. I had prayer partners. I had the most wonderful women. And I remember the day that Brian told the church that we were going to England. And I remember saying to myself, Cheryl, just put one foot in front of the other. You can make it. You can make it. And as I looked at each face that I had to say goodbye to, it was killing me. But I knew that we had eight more weeks to pack up, to move our stuff out, before we would leave Vista. And I thought, I don't know how I'm going to make it through that next eight weeks. And I remember the Lord spoke to me and he said, Cheryl, give these women everything you have. Wash their feet. And I didn't literally wash their feet. But I said, for the next eight weeks, any women who want to learn any lessons on leadership, you can ask me any questions about my life. You can even come hang out with me and help me pack up my house and clean. Um, Come meet with me. And I met with those women week after week. I explained how I did my devotions. I explained, you know, just even submission or how I did a Bible study. Anything they wanted to know. I was an open book because I wanted to impart to them everything that the Lord Jesus had given me and shown me because I want to make sure that they would stand, that they were equipped, that they were established. I did that. And then we moved to England and we were there for four years. And I made the mistake of falling in love with the congregation in England. And when the call came from my dad, you need to come back. The time is now. We had asked my dad for two years. He'd asked Brian in 1994 to take this church. And Brian said, Chuck, give me two years. And then in 1996, we went to England. And I remember my dad came over and he said, I already gave you that two years. And we said, we just need to see what God wants to do in England. And then he called us and he said, It's time. So we came back in 2000. And it was not easy. I loved those people in England. And I was concerned for those people in England. Had I, I did two Bible studies a week, a brunch once a month, taught Sunday school and did a retreat once a year. I facilitated the retreat, the other stuff I taught. I wanted to make sure that those women had everything they needed to stand, everything. And I remember the day Brian announced that we were going back to California. I found a room all by myself. 
and I wailed. I didn't cry. I wailed. In fact, I found it as far back in this school, because we rented this boys' school as possible, and I wailed. I couldn't hold it in. It wasn't like, <laughs> it was like, <laughs> and I was saying to the Lord, this is too much. This is too much. I love these people, and now this is ripping out my heart. It was like leaving a newborn baby. It was killing me. And I remember this caretaker, Tony Reed. He had gotten saved while we were there. Love Tony. And he came and he, he heard the wailing, and he is the caretaker of this school. And I remember he came and he opened the door. And he came over and he, he, you know, man, he sat next to me and he was like, and he just looked so ill at ease. And I stopped wailing while he was there. And it, then it was the snubs. Because <laughs> that's what you do when you're holding whales in, right? <laughs> and he just put his like hand on me. You know, and he just had this look like woman crying, woman snubbing, woman wailing woman. And pretty soon he's like, all right then. And he left. And pretty soon my friend Gloria walked in. She says, how you doing, Cheryl? I said, did Tony tell you to come and get me? She's like, yeah, he did. And she just sat next to me. And all she did was hold me in her arms. It's not easy to leave. It's not easy to entrust. And I would say that the thing that you have to surrender today is just as precious to you as these churches were to Paul, as those churches were to me. Paul travels with a group of men, no doubt passing the torch to them, encouraging them. They are observing him firsthand. They're going to take those lessons, that encouragement, back to the churches that they belong to. Sopater will take it back to Berea. Aristarchus and Segundus will take it back to Thessalonica. Gaius will take it back to Derby. Timothy to Lystra, to his mother and grandmother, to Ephesus that he'll later pastor. Tychicus and Trophimus will take it back to Asia. They agree to meet in Troas, and Paul gathers the believers together to break bread or to share in communion, remembering the Lord's death for them, being mindful of the price that Jesus paid to forgive their sins, reminding them of the unity that they share through the body of Christ and the forgiveness that we all receive from Jesus Christ. Paul, knowing that he's going to depart the next day, wants to give these believers everything I mean everything that he has. So he starts during the day, goes to midnight, and while he's teaching a young man, Eutychus, in that smoky room, begins to get so sleepy. Have you ever wanted to try to stay awake and you couldn't? Do you know that feeling? As a pastor's daughter, you learn things. Like, put your elbows on your Bible and go like this. But you know how it is? You feel your head go. Your elbows go out. You're like. 
I mean, there are times that you're just so overcome by sleep. No matter how you want to stay awake, it's not going to happen. My poor children, they wax eloquent at night. That's when they want to tell me their greatest problems. That's also when I'm the most quiet because my eyes might be open, but I don't know what they're saying because I'm asleep. And here is Eutychus, and, and he goes over by the window ledge. I remember coming back from um, college when I went to college in Santa Barbara, and I would be so tired at times that I'd have all my windows down and the air conditioner on full blast just to keep me awake. Have you ever been driving when you're like, you feel it, and you're just like, I've got to get freezing cold to stay awake. I've got to be miserable so I stay awake. So Eutychus moves by this open window, but you know what? The smoky room, Paul's voice, midnight, he falls out the window, three stories, and he dies. Paul runs down to Eutychus. We're told that he embraces him, prays for him, tells the disciples, don't worry, his breath is still in him. And we're told that they took him back in alive. And that word alive, I love this word, it's zeo. There's about 12 words in the Greek that can denote living or being alive. But this word zeo means fully active or vigorous. I love that. He's like, whoa, that was something. Did you see that? He's whole. He's all right. And he's brought in, and I love this. And the brethren were not a little comforted. You know, it's kind of like when we're told that the women saw Jesus and they rejoiced. You're like, are you kidding? They were doing backflips. So these men were so comforted and they saw an example of God's keeping power. So then Paul continues to preach until daybreak. Now that's one long sermon. You who think I go over time, which I do. Paul is undeterred. From here he goes but to Mytilene. He catches a ship to Miletus with his companions. He doesn't have time to go into Ephesus. He knows it's going to take too long. Maybe you know that feeling. Do you have certain friends that you know you can't have a short conversation with? No matter how you try. You see that name on you know, the dial and you're like, oh no. I love them, but this is five hours. You know, this is like, this is one of those things where they say, oh, did I tell you what happened? And, and you're like, that reminds me of what happened here. Or you want to give them that word of encouragement. You know that? Like, this, this is not going to be short. Paul knows that with the Ephesians. He can't just be just a few words. These are the Ephesians. He spent three years with them. He loves his church. Later, he's going to write them, an epistle. He cares about this body and these elders. He's made a huge investment into this church. So because he's trying to get back to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost, he has celebrated Passover in Philippi, which means he's only got 50 days to travel by ship all the way down to Jerusalem. And you know how reliable the ships were in that day. I mean, we're going to read at the end of Acts, a big shipwreck. But in Corinthians, 
before the big shipwreck in Acts, he testified that he had been shipwrecked already three times. It's a common occurrence for Paul. Not real reliable means of travel. So Paul calls for the elders to meet him on the shore of Miletus. His desire again for these elders is to encourage, give them an example, warn them and entrust them to God. So he gives them his example. He says to them, you know, in verse 18, you know. Paul had lived a very open life before them. They knew him. They saw him. He could be watched. He could be touched. He could be known. You know what manner I always lived among them, serving the Lord with all humility. Paul said, you know how I conducted myself. You saw my schedule and what I did. You were with me. Remember, three years they observed Paul. They saw that humility, the humility that wanted to go into that arena and defend them. Take me, not them. They saw that humility. They saw that Paul served the Lord even with the plotting of the Jews. They saw the cost. They saw his perseverance. When the Jews became relentless and wouldn't stop persecuting him, accusing him, Paul refused to compromise, back down, or run away. He stayed with them. And he says, with tears. Paul was not hardened or immune to the pain of being rejected. Again, he was someone who lived openly. He was not unemotional or stoic. He felt that pain. He knew what it was. A week ago on whatever the radio program is that I do with Brian on Fridays is called. Thank you. That thing. Wisdom from the word? Words of wisdom? Anyway, something. Something good that Brian came up with that I've never paid attention to and now I'm caught. This woman called and she was asking, how, did she, how could she forget? And I said, you know, first you have to acknowledge the pain and the infliction. You know, sometimes you have to look at the wound and say, you know what, that hurts. But I'm going to apply the hydrogen peroxide. I'm going to get the, the germs out of it. Then I'm going to put the antibiotic cream neosporin on it. And then I'm going to put the Band-Aid on it and seal it and just let it get healed. But you have to acknowledge that there's a wound. Paul hurt. He was wounded at times. It was hard for him. And they could see that life sometimes hurts. And it's our right that it hurts. Jesus wept with Mary. We're not called to be Stoics. We're not called to be, you know, we're called to be soft-hearted, not hard-hearted. We're going to hurt. There's a price we pay for that. Paul felt pain. He says then that he never kept anything back that was helpful to them. 
In verse 20, he says, I taught you publicly and privately. I would even go house to house just to get the gospel to you. And that he testified to both Jews and Greeks, the same message to all. He said, my message was consistent. Always the same, repentance towards God, because all men have sinned before God. All men have sinned. And every man, Jew, Greek, barbarian or free, male or female, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we all need to acknowledge our own folly and faults before God. And then he said, faith in Jesus. Whether you're Jewish, you can't get to God by the law. Whether you're a Gentile, you need faith in Jesus Christ. He said that he was unmoved by the threats and future. He said that the Holy Spirit testified in every city that chains and tribulations await me. Verse 24, I do not want that prophecy. Can you imagine? Chains and tribulation. But he's undeterred. undeterred. It wasn't like, you know, I don't know, Amos Obadiah who hates you is saying, chains and tribulations. No, it's like the Holy Spirit. What do you do with that one? Paul knew it would be so, and yet he said, I'm bound in the spirit. I'm compelled. Nothing's going to stop me. And he says this, but none of these things move me. Paul was not moved emotionally, physically, mentally, or spiritually. He was going to finish the course, the ministry that God gave him. He was staying on course. He was not moved. None of these things moved me. But why didn't they move him? Here's the example. Because he didn't count his life dear to himself. Women, let me tell you this. I get moved. I wish I didn't. And I know the reason I get moved. My life is dear to me. It is. I'm not there yet. I still, I still, like, Lord, that was mean what they did to Cheryl. It hurts. But I know, I know that as I surrender my life to Jesus, personally, here's the first thing I have to surrender me to Jesus. It hurts less and less and less. Neither do I count my life dear to me. And this is what he says, that I may finish my race. Now, he doesn't stop there, does he? I want to just finish this race. I want to do everything that God has given me to do. Mm -mm. There's more, isn't there? How is he going to finish that race with joy? That I might finish that race with joy. You know, when things begin to move us, what do we lose first? Joy, don't we? When people start saying thing about, things about us or those crises come, you owe the IRS. I'm only saying that because April's just right around the corner. When those crises come, the first thing to leave is the joy. And Paul says, you know what? I'm not letting these things move me because I want to just stay on course for Jesus and not lose the joy. I want to keep the joy of serving Jesus, of pleasing him. 
of doing what he's called me to do. I don't want to be sidetracked and sidelined because that's what is happening out here. They're trying, the world, the flesh, the devil is trying to get you off course. Paul says, I'm staying on course. I am going to finish that which the Lord has given me. And he says that I might testify, oh, that which I received from the Lord Jesus. He said, this is so precious to me. I got this directly from Jesus. I'm, this is more valuable to me than any of the offerings or my own life is that excellency that Jesus has given me in this earthen vessel. And he said that he might testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is his course. This is his ministry to speak grace, the gospel of grace. Jesus accepts you and the Holy Spirit sanctifies you. You are not self-sanctified and you don't have to sanctify yourself. Jesus is going to do it. All you need to do is worship Jesus, believe in Jesus, and God takes over and does the rest. You just cooperate with him, and he does it all. That's the gospel of grace. And Paul says, that's what I'm called to do. That's the ministry I do with joy. He said, I made sure, in verse 27, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. His example was he made sure to give the believers the whole counsel of God, the entire story. This was one of my dad's theme scriptures about the vision God gave him for this church and the vision that is going to continue in this church until the rapture comes. And that's to teach the whole counsel of God verse by verse. He said he never, in verse 33, coveted anyone's silver, gold, or apparel. I'm not really moved by the silver and gold, but the apparel. <laughs> Paul had one outfit. I mean, that coveting of an apparel could be something else if you had to walk around in one outfit. But he never coveted. He never lusted after it. He never tried to trick people out of it. He didn't want it. It was never a part of his ministry. He said in verse 34 that he labored with his own hands to support himself and his companions. He never took from anyone. He never demanded payment from anyone for services rendered. And he followed the example and word of Jesus when Jesus said, it is better to give than to receive. He lived by this motto. Then Paul gives a warning. He said, if anyone suffers death, if you die, if, if you choose not to listen or heed the gospel, you do so at your own peril. It's not my fault. I am not to blame. You know, everyone wants to blame somebody for their bad choices. Everybody wants to blame somebody for everything that's going on in their life. And they think by blaming others, they'll absolve themselves or they'll have freedom. It doesn't happen. It's not the way to freedom. Paul says, there's a cost to refusing the free gift of God. You will be responsible for your own sins. Jesus said, if you forgive others, your sins will be forgiven. But if you do not forgive others, then your heavenly father will not forgive your sins. If you blame others, 
you will bear the responsibility. How much better to forgive? Paul says, I'm free. I am free. You can't blame me for what's gone wrong or bad choices you make. I gave you the whole counsel of God. I stayed on course with what God has given me. I earned my own way. I didn't take from you. And I didn't covet anything that you have. I stayed on course. Then he said in verse 28, take heed to yourselves. We need to be on guard for ourselves. Too often we are watching for everybody else. I call it the elbow ministry. You sit in church and you elbow on this side and you elbow on this side. Mm, mm, mm. You, 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 you. That's scripture. You know, some people read the Bible and it's for everybody else but them. You know? Oh yeah, they need to do that one. Mm -hmm. Let me write it to them. (laughs) Email it. (laughs) You know, and they... Boom, boom, boom. Obey this. Boom. I already do it all. <laughs> I'm so perfect. I can condemn others. Stone. You know, using it as stones and persecuting others with the word of God. That's, those, that's how people got the reputation as Bible thumpers. Thumping. You know, the Bible is not meant to be to hit people over the head with. It's meant to be open and invite people into. This is what we do with the word of God. We need to guard our own hearts. We need to elbow ourselves. This is for me. Until I ingest it, I can't give it out. Paul said in speaking to Timothy, he said, I want you to think about the hardworking farmer. He must first partake of the crops before he feeds them to others. The word of God has to be applied to me first. I have to fall under its conviction and say, Lord, I can't do this, do this in me before I can invite anyone else to obey the word of God. You know, obedience should always be an invitation, not a demand. It should be a teddy bear. You have to go back to the first part of the study. We should all get teddy bears, not our names on the board. We need to realize that we are as susceptible as anyone else. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it proceeds the issues of life. We have to realize that our hearts, this is hard to hear, are evil. Basically, evil, evil, evil. In our hearts are adultery, fornication, murder, hatred, enmity, anger, bitterness, lies, deception. And we have to say, Lord, come in and cleanse my heart. We cannot trust in our own hearts. We have to realize that we can be deceived. And we have to keep our hearts open to the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit constantly. Letting Jesus do this. I find If a mean thought comes to mind and I get obsessed with it, or a mean word or phrase comes out of my mouth, I have to go back to my heart and say, Lord, something's going on in my heart. Something got into my heart. One of those fiery darts made its way to my heart, and I I need you to cleanse my heart right now. I need you to get this thing out. We need to take safeguards. If, if, I, I have talked to more women that doing Facebook, they got in touch with an old boyfriend 
and something bad happened. We need to take safeguards. You need to know your own weaknesses and make safeguards against those weaknesses. Paul said, take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall. We need to tend to our own spiritual health constantly, reading the word of God, being in fellowship, being accountable, praying, worshiping. Then Paul says to these elders, take heed to all the flock. And he says, these are God's sheep. They're an entrustment. They're not yours. You don't own the sheep. I don't own any sheep. God owns the sheep. I don't even have a dog anymore. I don't own the sheep. God owns the sheep. And God loves his sheep. He has, ins- he has specific instructions for their care. He treasures his sheep. He protects his sheep. I have to have the same esteem that God has for the sheep. Because they're his sheep. And I've been entrusted The flock is precious to God, so precious. He purchased each one of you with his own blood. That's how precious you are. I have to look at each of you as purchased by God, loved and adored by God, his own special treasure. That's who you are. That's how God feels about you. Years ago when I was at Westmont College, there had been this boy who had had a crush on me. And he made the mistake of one time giving me a Bible study. And I started to add to the study. And he said, ah, 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 let the women keep silence. And after that, I have to say, I didn't like him. And he told me that God told him he was going to marry me. And we were going to work in the slums of Santa Ana. I didn't know Santa Ana had slums, but you know. And that you know, I was going to have to give up my mother and father and you know, all this and this was God. And I told him, that is not God and you are not the one from God to me. So he sent me all these tracks on being backslidden and not hearing the Lord's voice. Anyway, we ended up at the same college. And he would look over at me like, kind of like, pitiful how you're in such disobedience, you know, not dating me. And so I began to shun him. I mean, I I did the full shun, you know? He did not exist in my world. I wouldn't even acknowledge his existence. And one time he came to me and he said, Cheryl, I was just like, what? And he said, just hear me out for a moment. I crossed my arms and I just looked at him and I said, okay, go ahead. And he said, I'm over you. And I said, okay, continue. And he said, I'm sorry about all that's gone on. He said, but Cheryl, I'm a daughter. I mean, I'm a son of a king. I am God's son. And he loved me and he died for me. And you don't have the right to treat me like this. He was so right. I was so convicted. I was like, oh, darn, there goes the shun. I had to bring the walls down. I was like... And you do understand that I will never marry you. God's got a Prince Charming out there somewhere for me. I always had this thing. I knew Brian was out there somewhere. I didn't know what he looked like, but I knew he surfed. I didn't meet him until I was um, 19 years old. But I knew he was out there somewhere. And I was so afraid to date somebody for fear he would find me with somebody else and say, oops, I guess she's taken. That was like my total fear. And 
and one day it just dawned on me after I'd been married to Brian like 10 years. Oh, he found me. You know, I found him. We got each other. Yay. I am. I'm married to my Prince Charming. I am. I, sorry. Sorry for those who aren't. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers, not owners, but overseers, appointed called by the Holy Spirit to shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd to feed, nourish, lead, check on their well-being, tend to. Then Paul says, because the wolves are coming. This word wolves is the Greek word. Savage wolves is one word in the Greek. It's lykos, and it means cruel, greedy, rapacious, destructive, aggressive. It's not just describing a wolf. It's describing a rabid wolf who's foaming at the mouth with a big appetite. All the better to eat you with. That type of wolf is what Paul is describing. He, the wolf only cares about his own appetite. He will not spare the flock. The flock is not precious to the wolf. It is all there to be consumed for his appetite. It's all about his wants, his needs. He will eat and devour. Then Paul says that among the believers, oh, let me just say this. Matthew 7, 15, Jesus said, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. They'll look like sheep. At times they'll talk like sheep. They walk alike, they talk alike. At times they even, you know, but they're different. They're cousins. No, the difference you know, unless you're over 50, you didn't get that. The wolves only care about their own appetite. You have to look at the fruit. You have to look at their diet. <laughs> what are they eating? We need to be careful. He says that they would arise among the believers themselves, speaking perverse things, or they would distort the truth. They would distort the Bible or they would use the Bible as a club against you. They would turn people away from the truth and they would draw away disciples after themselves. Here it is. If someone is saying, follow me rather than follow Jesus, listen to my word, not the word of God. There were two men that were on the radio in England on the Christian station and they said, we don't need the word of God. We don't need the Bible. We are the word of God. So when we speak, it is the word of God. And people need to give that esteem to all of our words because we are the word of God. And you're like, no, 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 no. That's what I call drawing disciples away after themselves. Within us and without Paul had warned these disciples for three years with tears, an impassioned plea. Paul had a very real concern. He would write about this in Colossians, in Galatians, in his epistles to Timothy, about this danger, about being on guard. He said, I warned you day and night. In every message Paul gave, there was this warning about wolves. The warning about those who would rise up from among us and want disciples after themselves. Now Paul entrusts them. Paul then commends these believers in verse 32 to God and the word of God's grace. He said, I give you to God, the almighty, 
the all-seeing, the all-knowing. In John 10, 28 through 29, Jesus has earlier talked about the wolf, how he comes to destroy, to rob and to steal and to destroy. But he says that no one can snatch a sheep from his father's hand. If you surrender that to the hand of God, if you surrender that situation yourself, whatever it is that's going on, no one can snatch it from the hand of God. Paul commends these believers to the word of God's grace, the gospel or the testimony of Jesus. The word of God. I love this word grace because grace is the power of God demonstrated towards us. It's demonstrated in giving us Jesus when we didn't deserve him. It's demonstrated in forgiving our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ, though we didn't deserve it. It's demonstrated in rescuing us again and again from trials, tribulations, our sins, ourselves. It's demonstrated in how he saves us, how he blesses us, how he walks with us. And he says, I'm going to give you the gospel of grace. What Jesus has done for you to put you in direct communion with God. And this word of his grace reminds us again and again of the power of our God and the awesome work that he has done. Paul says, I want you in the word of his grace because it it is able to fortify you and make you strong enough to handle life's hardship. Life is hard. Would you agree? When I was young, I thought Pilgrim's Progress was such a downer that, I mean, I remember I had to read it like twice. My mom kept making me read it. And I remember like, what a downer. John Bunyan was so depressed. And then, you know, I got in my 20s. And I was like, yeah, this, is, this isn't so bad. I got in my 30s. I was like, this is the best book. My 40s, I'm like, ah, 50s. I love that book. Life is hard. It is. It's full of hardships and pain. But the good news is God knows it, walks with us, and will rescue us and will take away the trial and leave a blessing in its stead and walk with us through it. The word of God is able to fortify us and make us strong. Years ago, I was in a maternity exercise class. That was a very strange-looking thing. It was the 80s, so we all looked like those elephants in Fantasia, or whatever they were, hippopotamus. They were something, those big animals in Fantasia with the little tutus. That's what I felt like in my maternity exercise class. The, the one thing people would always say to me um, when they observed me and I was pregnant, they would always say, and this happened from six months till I delivered, wow, you're huge. That seemed to be the best adjective or the only one that people could find. Not like, oh, how darling, you're pregnant. It was more like, wow, huge. <laughs> and I, I remember in this exercise class, I said, okay, now we're taking this exercise class because I'll have a shorter labor. And she's like, no. Oh, okay, so we're doing this exercise class because it will make my delivery easier. Easier, no. So it's not gonna shorten my delivery. It's not gonna make it easier. Why am I putting myself through this? And she said, it will make you strong enough to endure labor 
to a delivery. I was like, oh, great. Good. This word will make you strong enough to endure and make it through trials to the delivery of a blessing. This will fortify you. This will build you up. And then he says, it will give you an inheritance. Again, it will give you a blessing. It will tell you about the blessings that are yours, and it will give you a blessing and inheritance with the partakers, with the saints. You'll be a partaker. So I want you to see two things with an inheritance, with the partakers. It's not just that it gives you an inheritance, but it gives you a unity with other believers. It gives you a sense of community. Together we partake. Just like we partake of the same loaf or the same bread at communion, it's that oneness. We partake of Jesus Christ together. He is our inheritance, and he has even more blessings and glory awaiting us. And this brings us all in together as partakers. And it fortifies us and builds us up. This grace sanctifies us or sets us apart for God's purposes. And this grace qualifies us for this inheritance. And this grace builds us up and fortifies us so we get to that inheritance. The word of his grace to God the Almighty and to the word of his grace. I just want to add just one thing. When the, when the Sadducees came to Jesus and they had this hypothetical situation, let's say there's a, a woman who marries seven times, all of her husbands die, when she gets to heaven, whose wife is she? They wanted to try to say, Jesus, the resurrection is a ridiculous notion because what about that common situation where women lose seven husbands and they're all saved and go to heaven? It's, it's totally hypothetical. It's unreasonable. But Jesus looks at him and he says, you know what? This is where you're mistaken. Because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. You see, Jesus was saying to these men, you're always going to be mistaken. You're always going to get it wrong if you don't know two things. The power of God and what the scriptures say. So Paul here is, what is he commending them to? God that you might know his power, the scriptures, that you might know the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. This is an entrustment. I can't hold you, but I know you'll be held if you are under God and in his word. I know you'll make it if you're in his hand and you've got his word, you'll make it. You'll make it. You'll make it against the savage wolves. You'll make it through the hostile Jews. You will make it. When Paul finished talking, he knelt down and prayed with them all in verse 36. The greatest way we can entrust is to pray. And the prayer we give, that thing, that person, that situation, into God's hands that's what we do in prayer. Prayer is not to get my will done, but to bring me into conformity with what God is doing. In prayer, I give God everything into his capable hands. I say in prayer, God, I give you this thing, this situation, this person or people. 
because I am helpless to do anything. But you, God, can do all things, and so I commit it into your capable hands. Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.12, For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Let me say this. Relinquishment is not easy, painless, or unemotional. On the shore of Miletus, we're told that they wept freely, that they fell on Paul's neck, that they kissed him, sorrowing, heartbroken to think that they would never see his face on earth again. Relinquishment is often like that, isn't it? It's sorrowful. You know, I am giving this up and I'm never going to see it again. I am giving this over to God. I might never touch it, feel it, know it. I have to put it into God's hands and it hurts. It causes pain. I remember when my Aunt Isi was dying. She was in a coma. My Aunt Isi was my mentor, my advisor, my spiritual um, inspiration, one of the most gracious, most godly, kind, loving women I knew. And I remember as she was in the coma, the Lord put on my heart, Cheryl, it's time to give her to me. Let me have her. I have purposes for her up in heaven. And I remember when I, I all of a sudden, you know, I was there with my siblings, my mom and dad. And I said, Isi, it's never been easy to say goodbye to you. And it's not easy right now. But I release you into the hand of the Lord. You can go to heaven, Isi. You can go and it's all right. And I'll see you when I get there. And then, you know, I can't remember if it was one of my brothers or my sister. We all prayed and we gave Isi into the hands of the Lord. We were sorrowing because we knew we wouldn't see her face on earth anymore. The dearer the entrustment, the greater the gift we are giving to God. There was a missionary to China named Dr. Pauline Hamilton. And while she was serving in China, she got news that her mother was ill. So she took a boat and she came back to America. And by the time she reached her home, she found out her mother had gone on to heaven. But her father was gravely ill and she was concerned about her father's health and she felt maybe she should stay and take care of her father. But her father looked at her and said, Pauline, I gave you to Jesus Christ and I will not take you back. You get back to China as quickly as possible. I will not take you back. I gave you to Jesus. I love Jesus more than I love you. I love Jesus more than I love you. I will not take back what I have given him. David said, I will not give the Lord that which costs me nothing. And when this man was giving his daughter to Jesus, he was giving God the most precious thing he had. Pauline Hamilton got on the ship to go back to China and a telegram came to her. Your father is now in glory. It was that dual relinquishment. What is it today that you need to relinquish to God? What is it that you can no longer hold on to or maybe holding on to just makes it worse? He is able to accomplish what you can't. When my dad was a little boy, 
He went over to his grandma's house and his grandma had a whole bunch of baby chicks and my dad loved those baby chicks. And he would pick them up one by one and he would just hold them so tightly till they stopped squirming. And he looked at them and they'd fallen asleep. So he put them down and he took another one and would hold it till it stopped squirming. Yes, each one of those little chicks went to whatever place God has intended for little chicks after death. He thought holding on to them, not letting them go, was the best thing for the little chicks. But it took the life out of them. When we hold on to what God has asked us to relinquish and to give to him, we take the life out of it. We have to give into God's capable hands. You are not letting this thing go to the winds of nature the elements of earth. You are, re- you are not releasing to fate or blind chance. You are giving this person, this thing, possession, this situation, into the capable hands of the almighty God who will leave a blessing in its stead. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are able, you are able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. You are able, Lord, when we relinquish to do something that we never could have done, you, you are God almighty. You are God all compassionate. Lord, we entrust, we give to you in Jesus' name. Amen.